Well, good morning, Chillicothe Bible Church. Hey, isn't it good? Isn't today good? It's going to be 40 degrees today. I think I'm going to go outside in a pair of shorts. <laughs> Praise God. All right. Uh, this is a good day. And it is good to be with you and to worship God together. Um, you know, I, I noticed that uh, during the prayer time, we had a lot of requests. Uh, in fact, I was passed another one, and I'm going to pray for that one in just a second here. Uh, but one thing you may not be aware of, uh, we have prayer in the office every week uh, as part of our staff meeting. And we also have uh, a prayer team that meets here on Tuesday morning at 6 a.m. If you are among the, the rowdy and zealous for prayer, you can be there uh, and join with them in prayer. Uh, if you would rather pray at a more decent hour, um, you can be on our prayer team uh, and, be, and be part of the, uh, part of the prayer chain. Uh, that's an email that gets sent out every week. Um, uh, with all of those requests, and we have those things available. If you'd like to have something added to that, just email me or Jim or Teresa at the office. Our email addresses are all easy. It's just jim at chilibible.org or joe at chilibible.org or teresa at chilibible.org. And we'll, we, will pray for the, we will pray for you. We'll be faithful in upholding you before the Lord. But also our, our, the other members of our prayer chain and prayer team will pray for you also. So uh, just a good word on that. Let me do pray for this request. Uh, Tom Saxton's niece, Diane, uh, lost her boyfriend in a snowmobile accident on Thursday. And her brother was killed on a snowmobile about 10 years ago. So this is, this is actually a, kind of a painful reminder. So... Let's pray as, as God's people uh, for Diane. God, our Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are gracious, that you love us, that you ask us. You don't just allow us, but you ask us to come to you and to seek you when we are in need. And Father, we pray for Diane. We pray that you would comfort her in her heart. Uh, in the death of this young man who was so dear to her. Uh, Father, I know it's a painful reminder in her case. And Father, I just pray that, as in all things, that your love would overflow to her and that she would be very near to you in these days when it's hard. And I pray your mercy would extend also to this young man's family and that they would find you faithful in the midst of tragedy. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Uh, last week, in, as we were here together, um, we saw the, the monotonous march of generation after generation after generation of people living under the curse, living with the after effects of sin, living apart from God and each other, toiling by the sweat of their brow and coming to the end of their days, however long, and then dying. And on and on and on through the centuries, people waited, hoped for deliverance, hoping that the promised one would come and that they would have rest. And we saw Lamech, 
who's the, who is the seventh from Adam in the recorded line of Seth, he's crying out, as many of us do and did, O oh God, give us rest. And he's trusting God to give him rest, and he names his son Noah rest, indicating that the hope that he has is in God to provide rest from all the painful toil and the effects of the curse. And that's not so different from our day, is it? If you've been around a while, you're out of your teens, certainly, and experienced adult life for a few years, after a while, your heart cries out for rest. Because all of the hopes and many of the dreams that you had don't quite get fulfilled in the way that you had imagined. And people close to you die. Uh, people that you know get sick and suffer. And it's painful. And one day, of course, your day comes when a doctor comes in looking grim and says, I have some unfortunate news. You've been diagnosed with fill in the blank. And you know that ahead of you, you've got a long road. And your heart cries out for rest. And a lot of times, you know, even as Christians, we can look back. It's been now 2,000 years since the first advent of Christ. And to wonder how long, Lord, are we going to wait for you to fulfill your promises? How long are we going to have to wait for rest? How long are we going to have to wait for an end to evil. You know, the great philosophers, if you get into a philosophy class, they're going to ask you this question, and you're going to have to have a good answer if you're a Christian. In fact, you need a good answer. Uh, if, there is, if you are a believer in Christ, they're going to ask you this question. They're going to say to you, if God is all-powerful and if he loves people, how come the world is the way it is? Why so filled with evil? Why so filled with sin? How come God doesn't deliver? And the answer is that God does judge sin and evil. And he will deliver, but not yet. There's going to come judgment, but in, in, in the days between now and then, there's also grace. How do we know? Well, one of the proofs that God does judge evil and he does bring grace before then is this little story in Genesis 6 about Noah. Got your Bible? Go to Genesis chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. When men began to increase in number on the earth and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful. And they married any of them that they chose. And then the Lord said, My spirit will not contend with man forever, for he is mortal. His days will be a hundred and twenty years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God went to the daughters of men and had children by them. And they were the heroes of old, the men of renown. 
Now, these first four verses are all about human wickedness, even though we're not exactly sure what's going on. Uh, those of you who know your Bibles know that uh, these verses, these four verses, are probably some of the most debated verses in terms of what they mean in the entire Bible. Specifically, people are curious, what does it mean by the sons of God? Who are these fellows? And how do, they, uh, how do they persist and how do they rise? Now, there are three main interpretations on this, and I'll, I'll lay them out for you and then I'll give you mine, all right? First one is this, that the sons of God refers to people who are godly, who are raised to be godly, who nevertheless intermarry with people who are not godly, and what results is not godliness, but the elimination of godly people from the earth. And so what you have is people descended in the line of Seth who are raised to be godly, who are raised to know God, who are raised to understand who God is and to walk with him as Enoch did. But they're beginning over time to intermarry with people descended from the line of Cain who are dedicated to rebelling against God. And over time, what happens is, is that all of the godly people are eliminated. They're assimilated into pagan culture. And that's possible interpretation. Uh, lots of Bible teachers that I respect and that you would respect, uh, conservative guys, take that line. And that's possible. Okay? Another option is this. Uh, that the sons of God, and this is, this is accurate, the sons of God is the normal term in the Old Testament, especially for angels. And so that the sons of God are angels who are fallen, because the, their offspring are called the Nephilim, the fallen ones, who come down and they cohabit with human women. And they produce these, this race of giants and, um, and mighty people, and they spread wickedness throughout the earth. Now, I know that is weird. I know that is sensational. People say, well, how is that possible? Well, one thing I would point out to you is that in the Scriptures, all angels are mentioned as male, and they appear always in the Scriptures as male. And so when people talk about, well, but angels can't do that. Physically, that doesn't work. We don't know that. The Bible doesn't say that. Uh, and also, there are some people who take pa a passage in Second uh, Peter and in Jude that refer to angels who left their heavenly dwellings and went after strange flesh as a reference to this passage. And they were punished for it. Now, a lot of good conservative Bible teachers take that. And, and, and some of you may be sitting there and looking at me and going, are you saying that maybe there were like Rosemary's baby kind of stuff? Possibly, potentially. Okay, I can't prove that. I don't know. This is a fairly obscure text. Uh, I take the third view. Okay, Francis Schaeffer took the second view. You know, smart guy. Good Bible teacher, a lot of understanding of the Scriptures, okay? Traditional Jews follow the second view, okay? Your conservative rabbis are going to teach you that's what happened. And, 
And the, my view is that these are demonically controlled human men. Uh, they're not, it's not the offspring of demons and people. It's the offspring of demonically controlled people. Uh, and, they are, and they are corrupting the human race. And these men are doing, uh, doing Lamech the, in the line of Cain one better, and they're saying, well, two wives isn't really quite enough. You need to have a lot of wives, and then I can have immortality through my offspring, through this dynasty that I establish. And they become the heroes of old, these men of, of might and power, because they are empowered literally by demons. And, and I, I take that view because I think it makes the, the best sense of what is going on here. I think you can also understand Jude and Second Peter as uh, talking about indwelling um, rather than a physical relationship between a demon and a human being. Uh, you may take a different view, but here's the issue, and I want us to not miss the forest on the tree examination here. The point is this, that what is happening, whoever the sons of God are, what is happening is that the earth and all of its people are becoming completely wicked to a point that there are not any righteous people at all. There are not any. They are gone. Um, you can take a different view on this than, than, than I do, and we can sit and drink coffee and we can debate it and have a good time having a theological discussion. But the, the point of the passage is that the human race is being completely corrupted. And the people who are on the earth at that time are described as the fallen ones, the Nephilim. And God says, my patience is about to run out. You've got 120 years, and then that's it. I, I think when he's talking about his days will be 120 years, he's not talking about the person's lifespan, because after this, there are lots of people, including Abraham and Isaac and Moses and others, who live longer than 120 years. I think he's talking about you've got 120 years until judgment comes. And my patience is about to run out. He is going to deal with humans because sin is taking over humanity completely. And though God's patience is long, it's not unlimited. And God is going to bring judgment. Let's continue here. Verse 5, the Lord saw how great man's wickedness on the earth had become and that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. And the Lord was grieved that he had made man on the earth, and his heart was filled with pain. So the Lord said, I will wipe mankind whom I have created from the face of the earth, men and animals and creatures that move along the ground and birds of the air, for I am grieved that I have made them. So mankind is being corrupted by sin. Sinful men are finding new ways to pursue their wickedness, and at this point, God's patience is being exhausted. Men are so wicked that the only thoughts that they're having is how to do evil, and everybody on the whole planet is becoming devoted to rebellion. 
And we find this, you know, as you read this text, you find this just startling emotional language talking about God. And it says that he was grieved and his heart was filled with pain. And I think that language is there on purpose. Number one, I think it reminds us that though God is sovereign and though he does have a plan, he enters into our pain with us, even in the midst of the the things that he allows in fulfillment of his sovereign purpose and plan. God allows evil to continue, but it's not as if he sits up there in sort of a disinterested thought of, well, I guess they just let stuff happen and at some point I'll bring it into it, maybe. No. When sin happens, it brings pain to God because it is rebellion against him, first of all, but also because it is destroying what he had made beautiful and the people that he had made and loves. And so even while God allows evil to continue and persist, it is not as if he is sort of a disinterested absentee landlord over the universe. He is entering into our experience, and he experiences, according to the Scripture, pain, even over what he sovereignly purposed and allowed. And because God's justice is loving justice, he announces that judgment is coming. And he gives time for people to repent, but he announces that judgment is coming. And he wants people to repent and to walk with him. And he's going to give them every opportunity to turn. But then the flood will come. And all the evil on earth will be destroyed. And the world will be washed clean of all the sinfulness that was on it. And, and you might think that seems kind of harsh for God to just say, you know what? There's coming a point where it's done. It's over. But here's the thing. How long would you, as a person, sit back and watch evil be done to people that you love. How long? Is it loving to allow evil to persist in an unlimited way? No, it's not. It's evil to do that. And so God, because he loves us, does bring justice and judgment. And I am so glad. Because it says that at the end of the day, that evil does not triumph. Now, God may not settle accounts every month on the 30th of the month. But God will and does settle accounts with wicked people. And he does bring an end to evil fully and finally. And he is going to in this generation. These people are only evil in their thoughts all the time. And so God says, it's enough. I'm not going to allow evil to continue to persist. I'm not going to uh, 
not have a limit as to how long evil people can escape justice. God is going to get rid of his enemies. And these people are all enemies of God. And he's going to get rid of them one of two ways. He is either going to redeem them and make them his friends. Or is he, he is going to judge them and eliminate them. One or the other. Now, that's the judgment part of this message. Now let's hear about grace. All right? But, the, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. This is the account of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time, and he walked with God. Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. But now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and was full of violence. God saw how corrupt the earth had become, for all the people on earth had corrupted their ways. And so God said to Noah, I'm going to put an end to all people, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. I am surely going to destroy both them and the earth. So make yourself an ark of cypress wood, make rooms in it, and coat it with pitch inside and out. This is how you are to build it. The ark is to be 450 feet long, 75 feet wide, and 45 feet high. Make a roof for it and finish the, the ark to within 18 inches of the top. Put a door in the side of the ark and make lower, middle, and upper decks. I'm going to bring floodwaters on the earth to destroy all life under the heavens, every creature that has the breath of life in it. Everything on earth will perish, but I will establish my covenant with you. And you will enter the ark, you and your sons and your wife and your sons' wives with you. You're to bring into the ark two of all living creatures, male and female, to keep them alive with you. Two of every kind of bird, of every kind of animal, and every kind of creature that moves along the ground will come to you to be kept alive. You are to take every kind of food that is to be eaten and store it away as food for you and for them. And Noah did everything just as the Lord commanded him. Now, this part of the chapter right here, is probably the most misunderstood, mistaught, misapplied part of this chapter. You can have differing views on the sons of God. You can have differing views on how you understand parts of it. But a lot of times people have what I would call Statler Brothers theology when it comes to this chapter. Uh, now, those of you who are uh, younger than me, the Statler Brothers were a country group you could, used to listen to them on 8-track, which 8-track was the precursor to cassettes. Never mind. Um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> too much, all right? But the Statler brothers were this group of guys that used to sing, and one of the songs they had was a, group, uh, was a song about Noah and the ark. And this is how, how it went, part of it. Well, the Lord looked down from his window in the sky and said, I created man, but I don't remember why. Nothing but the fighting since creation day. I'll send a little water and I'll wash them all away. So the Lord came down to look around a spell, and there he found Noah behaving mighty well. And that is the reason the scriptures record that Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Now, here's the problem with that song. They use the word grace, but they have no concept of what it means. Because let me just explain to you. Noah was not behaving mighty well 
and that is why he found grace in the eyes of the Lord. That has nothing to do with it. In fact, if you read the text, it says that everyone, all of the people on the entire earth, all of them, were wicked. And all of the thoughts of all of the intents of all of their hearts were only evil all of the time. So how did Noah come to be a different person than that? Well, it wasn't because he thought, hmm, you know, everybody else is kind of floating downstream like dead fish. I'll just decide I'm going to swim upstream and, and, and obey God. No. It says that he found favor. It's the Hebrew word for grace. What happened is this, is that God gave Noah grace, not because of who Noah was, but because of who he is. And Noah, as a result of God's grace, responded in faith and believed God. And then, verse 9, he was a righteous man. But it wasn't that somehow Noah was a pretty good guy, and so God decided to give him grace. No. He was wicked just like everybody else, and he became a righteous man through the gracious act of God, reaching down and saving him. The same way that you and I got saved, incidentally, if we have been, is because God initiated an act of salvation by which he gives grace to his people, they respond to him in faith, which according to Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, even the faith that I believe with is a gift of God. And by grace from God, through faith also given to me by God, Noah became a righteous man. His walk with God was changed by God's grace. God's grace came to him, and he was changed. And then he became, as the Scripture says, blameless among the people of his time and walked with God. An undeserving sinner gets grace alone, through faith alone, and that then enables someone to be a righteous person. But grace that is earned is not grace. And God's grace came to Noah not because he deserved it, not because he earned it, but because it was grace. It was a gift. It was free. Uh, God loves, and so he gave grace to undeserving Noah, just like he gave grace to undeserving you and me. God's method of salvation has always been the same. It's by grace through faith, every single place, every single time. And God's grace changed his heart, and so he began to walk with God, and God made him a righteous man among all the people of his time. And because of God's love and justice, he will not allow judgment to fall in the same way on righteous people as on wicked people. And so he rescues Noah and his family. 
he tells Noah, look, you're going to build a boat, and he gives them dimensions. And if you assume that a cubit is 18 inches, which we don't know how big a cubit is really, uh, but if you assume 18 inches equals a cubit, uh, then 300 cubits by 50 cubits by 23 cubits, which is uh, what the Hebrew text says, is 450 feet long, 75 feet wide, and 45 feet high. It's, uh, I have to check the math, but it's, it's over, well over a million cubic feet of space. So it's a big boat. Uh, and the boat is going to be filled by God in His grace with all uh, varieties of animals that move and birds that move along the earth. And God is going to bring two of every kind to Noah, and they're going to get on the boat with him and his family. And I don't know how to explain how all this happens. Well, was there enough room on the ark for all that many animals? Uh, you know, did, did they just show up one day right before the flood came? What happened? How did that exactly work? I don't know. But here's what I do know for sure. That... The Bible describes, and I have met, the God who hung the stars into place and who makes the universe move like a giant clock and who keeps the earth spinning on its axis day after day after day and who has crafted this planet specifically so that you and I can live here. Now, is it a problem for the God who can do that to keep alive the animal species on a boat for a little over a year. Not really, okay? So all the people who want to get into an exp you know, well, you know, I mean, think about how many species there are and how many, how much food that would be and how much waste product you'd have to shovel and all the rest of that. And how, how would you do that, okay? It's not the, that's not the question. The question is, does the God that Genesis described exist or not? And if he does, keeping the animals and birds alive on a boat is no problem. And if he doesn't, then what do we care? Right? If he doesn't, then we're alone in the universe and we are here because our number came up on the roll of the dice at Monte Carlo as one atheist philosopher said. But I believe, and I, in fact, know to be true, that the God of the Bible exists. And so how this event with the ark works, I don't need to explain. I don't need to understand. Because the God who is powerful enough to make stars and galaxies and human beings is powerful enough to keep animals alive on a boat. Amen? All right. Uh, not to say it's not a good question. It's just not one that interests me a great deal. <laughs> all right? <laughs> you can sketch it all out if you want, okay? Uh, and, and realize that, you know, a lot of the animals, you know, could have been in egg form or could have been, um, you know, infant animals or whatever. You know, go into all that if you want to discuss that. But the fundamental issue is, does this God exist? And if he does, he can make it happen. This is a God who controls the wind and the waves. This is no big deal. Okay? Uh, why did God give 120 years? Let me ask that question. 
Why did God give 120 years? Well, I believe it's two reasons. Number one, that he lovingly and graciously exercised patience with people, giving them an opportunity to repent. He gave them 120 years. Look, judgment is coming, people. You got 120 years. But I think the other thing is, is that he is graciously giving Noah and his sons time to build this boat as a witness to all, their, all the people on the earth. Have you heard about crazy old Noah? He's building a boat out in the middle of, well, it's a long way from the ocean. We'll just say that. Okay, we don't know what the landscape looked like, but it's a long way from the ocean for a boat the size of an ocean liner. Because that's how big we're talking about. We're talking about one the size of a modern-day cruise ship. Okay, big. And while that's happening, 1 Peter says that Noah was a preacher of righteousness. Because this is going to generate some conversation. You got this big boat going up. Hey, uh, what's with the boat, big guy? Uh, Well, you know, it's my retirement hobby. No, um, God is going to send a flood. And if you don't repent and come back to God, he's going to send the flood and you're going to die in it. And for 120 years, while Noah pounds this boat together, it stands as witness to the fact that God's judgment is coming and you have an opportunity to repent now. Uh, Let me just highlight a couple things here as we close. First, the flood is the event demonstrating the lengths to which God will go to defeat sin and evil and bring holiness to his people. God is determined. If you want to summarize the plan of God throughout all human history, God is determined to fill the earth with righteous people who follow him. And he is going to achieve it. Eventually, of course, he's going to achieve it in a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. How do we know that promise is going to come true? The flood is one one reason. The flood reminds us that God, while he permits evil to continue for a while, is not going to allow it forever. In fact, in your New Testament, in both books of, of Peter, both epistles of Peter in the New Testament, he mentions the flood as proof that God does judge. He says in 2 Peter, he goes, people say, ever since the fathers fell asleep, everything goes on just as it has since the beginning of creation. In other words, and they say, where is the promise of God's coming? You keep saying, dear friend, that Jesus is coming back. Well, where's the groom if you're the bride? And he says, but they deliberately forget that the world was created out of water and by water and that by water God destroyed the wicked people in the generation of Noah. In other words, he says, but don't you forget God does judge, and the world as it exists now is not forever. It's a temporary thing until God wipes it clean. 
In fact, there is only one other event that shows to the same extent, in fact, to a greater extent, the lengths to which God will go to defeat sin and evil and bring holiness to people. And it's the crucifixion. That God, through an implement of wood, brought judgment on sin and evil and righteousness to his people. These two events show the pathways that are available. Either you're going to receive God's grace demonstrated to you in the implement of wood or you are going to encounter God's judgment. But one way or the other, sin is going to be washed away through the blood of Jesus or through the flood of God's judgment won't be by water, it'll be with fire and destruction. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord, and I know I have already beat this drum long and loud, but let me beat it some more. Let me beat this equine sufficiently dead, all right? This is the, a lot of times, most of us go through our lives thinking this, well, in Noah's day, All the people were bad except Noah, and he found grace in the eyes of God because he was a pretty decent fella. No. The Bible never tells us that there are good people and bad people, and it's better to be good instead of bad, and then God will love us and save us and help us. No. The Bible says that there are ultimately two kinds of people. That's true. But there are wicked people, and then there is Jesus. And if you are a human being and you are not named Jesus, the Son of God, from Nazareth, okay, if that's not who you are, then you're in this other category, wicked folk. And here's the thing. You have the opportunity to find grace in the eyes of the Lord through faith in Jesus Christ, the only good person who has ever lived. And God does not ultimately save good people and punish bad people. God saves wicked people and makes them into good people. Salvation is not a matter of being good enough to earn God's love, but of recognizing that all the things that you could do don't measure up. And only God's love coming to you in the cross in grace can grant you God's love and a salvation that you could never earn and don't deserve, but that God will give to you anyway. So if you've never done that, if you've never found grace in God's sight, let me encourage you that today salvation is available. If you will trust in the, mes- in the instrument of grace that God made available, the death of his son on the cross. But grace is important to us regardless of where we are on our spiritual journey. And this is the last thing I'll say. If you're a person who has never entered into your relationship with God, obviously grace is important to you because it's the only thing keeping you from being separated from God forever in hell. But if you are a person 
who is a believer in Jesus Christ, grace is also the way that we experience spiritual growth. Because our life with, with God is not designed to simply start by grace and then continue on by our effort. It's designed to start and continue and finish all by looking to and experiencing God's grace. So if you're working really hard to please the Lord, understand this, that God loves you not because of what you do, not because of who you are, but in spite of who you are, in spite of what you do, God loves you, and he wants to change you by his grace. Let's pray. God, our Heavenly Father, I have done my best to explain the unexplainable, how you who are completely holy, fully righteous, and utterly separated from sin, nevertheless choose by your love to save us out from your judgment because of your grace, because you love us. I pray, Father, that everyone here would experience your grace, surely in salvation, but also in daily life, that every day would be a, a recognition that you have come to them in grace to make them holy and fulfill your plan. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen.